starting businesses, running businesses were not, it's not, those are not evil things. Those are actually meaningful things to do, uh, independent of the career one chooses. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Atua Butte is an infectiously exuberant champion of science, sharing, and entrepreneurship, and the Chan Zuckerberg Distinguished Professor at UCSF. Among the questions we'll explore today, can the irresistible force of Atua Butte overcome the immovable object of health data silos? This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's episode is brought to you by DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. So, Lisa? Yes, David. So you recently uh, highlighted a, uh, a post by a VC. I was surprised in some sense, but not completely surprised to see you highlight it. It was, it was entitled, Is Digital Health Dead? Um, you know, I've been long saying that that term digital health is dead or should be dead or should be murdered anyway. <laughs> I think that the truth is it's not a real concept, that there's healthcare and there's the application of technology to healthcare. But by making it a thing, digital health, it's sort of illusory and silly. Um, we don't call it digital banking. We don't call it digital manufacturing. We don't. Why are we calling it digital health? And that we should be finding ways to apply technology to healthcare that makes sense. Um, and and stop calling it a thing. It's so interesting. I feel like and so we're. Sm- almost completely aligned on this. I'm actually giving a talk. I've given talks specifically calling out and critiquing what I would call digital health exceptionalism. Um, But at the same time, I understand the instinct to want to protect something that's new and growing so that it can sort of you know, evade some of the traditional antibodies. But at some point, you actually have to enter, you know, the inline use or else you're sort of like an innovation snowflake. It can be new and growing, but it has limited utility. <laughs> In, that's, just, that's just lovely. Um, I, you know, you step right on my innovation snowflake. All right. Anyway, um, we are delighted with no transition whatsoever to welcome, to welcome the great and awesome Atul Butte to the show today. Thanks so much, Atul, for joining us. Lisa David, it's so great to be here. And I don't need a transition. I can take on anything here. Excellent. excellent. All right. All right. So, so there's so much to discuss and get to, but I want to start with the early years. I know you were born on Long Island and grew up in New Jersey. So some might say that you had nowhere to go but up. Um, now, we'll, oh. we'll <laughs> boom. So we'll, we'll hold off. Watch on, it. I was from New Jersey, too. <laughs> I, 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 my, some of my best uh, years were briefly in New Jersey. Um, but we'll hold off on the, the Tony Soprano comments and references. But I was curious, what was it like growing up in the Butte household? And when did you discover your first computer? Yeah, so uh, my parents are very technologically oriented. My father uh, was a community college professor teaching biology to all the pre-nursing students around the Philadelphia area. And then my mom went back after staying at home for a a while to learn about new careers. And she took an aptitude test and all of a sudden they said she'd be perfect for this brand new job of computer programmer. So she was learning computer programming kind of like when I was in middle school. Hmm. And we ended up with the first Apple II Plus in seventh grade, eighth grade, and uh, uh, never looked back at that point. Wow. And now I I remember you telling me that you took advantage of computers that were in department stores. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, well, you know, that's where you bought computers back then. Uh, You know, John Wanamaker's or uh, the the local department stores were the ones that carried them. There were were a few computer stores here and there. 
And so before we had our first personal computer, uh, I used to write programs in those spiral notebooks at home. And then when my parents were shopping, I'd go down to the computer section and just type in these programs to do a TN99 or one of these, uh, you know, an Apple II Plus if you were lucky. Uh, I think that's when my parents figured out they should probably get a computer for home. They were insanely <laughs> expensive. But yeah. We're sneaking into Macy's and using the ladies' lingerie uh, checkout computer to program. <laughs> <laughs> No one else knew what to do with computers. You don't have to answer that. That's a little bit more Lisa. Than... <laughs> so I know that you were inspired by um, by television shows like National Geographic by their images of MRIs and CTs, and you uh, you initially thought you were going to be a, a radiologist. Is that right? Yeah. So I knew I wanted to go into medicine. I was volunteering at a hospital at the time, and I loved the computer thing. I was writing uh, code at home and doing interesting things. I wanted to put those two together. And, um, you know, National Geographic was a magazine we used to get. Uh, you used to see these covers of MRI and, you know, 3D kinds of images way back when. And I always thought the way to put right. those two together would be in radiology. Uh, it wasn't until later that I realized, you know, the really cool part, you know, the code that we don't know how to read was the genome project and the molecular side of cells. And, uh, you know, that's when things shifted for me. So, I, you know, there's a whole lot of talk lately about radiology being a... Uh... Uh, disappearing, uh, you know, skills or disappearing job, I guess, because it will be taken over by computers. What do you think about that? Did you dodge a bullet? Oh, so I, I'm, I'm asked this all the time. You know that. Uh, so I think certain aspects of it could be replaced, but I think there's a lot of art still involved. Um, you know, AI and uh, machine learning in general really only works if you get enough cases taught. You know, all those boundary conditions, uh, the rare things, we still have this interoperability problem where we can't really amass these types of large data sets to train machine learning. It's going to change. I mean, know that about it. We're all into putting data sets together. And one of the big aspects of why to do that would be to train uh, AI machine learning. But I don't think radiologists will be completely out of business like some are predicting. Well, you're just not signing. It sounds like a UCSF at the moment. You're not signing out your uh, UCSF reach to the AI overlords yet. No, I don't think uh, anything is signed off exactly like that. Uh, software just can't take over the physicians yet. But certain aspects of their jobs would probably be replaceable uh, <laughs> by computers, uh, I think, like in many industries. Right. So I'm looking forward to getting to that. But I want to go a little bit about more of your journey. I know like so many other wise men and women, including my brother Jonathan and my wife, as well as recent guest Zach Kohaney, you had the good sense to attend college and subsequently medical school, I believe, at Brown, where you studied computer science and discovered your passion for entrepreneurship. Can you tell us how you came upon your entrepreneurial side? Yeah, I mean, so... Uh, uh, my summer jobs when I was an undergrad at Brown in computer science were at Apple and uh, Microsoft. And uh, during one of the summers, uh, as a summer intern at Apple, uh, they gave us all these books by John Scully, uh, who wasn't the most famous Apple CEO, of course. Uh, in fact, in hindsight, perhaps now hated. Uh, but he had written this book about entrepreneurship and his own journey to Apple. That really got me into thinking that Starting businesses, running businesses, were not, it's not, those are not evil things. Those are actually meaningful things to do, uh, independent of the career one chooses. And so I was writing software at Brown, virus checking software and things like that, and uh, ended up starting to make money on some of these things. Sold some of that software even before I knew what a C corporation was. Uh, I got bitten early by the bug. Uh, I know that uh, between your third and fourth year of med school, you uh, had a sound like a pretty formative experience at um, the NIH with uh, Howard Hughes. Um, but you also uh, 
still did more programming there and had another business. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So I took a year off in medical school, uh, lived on NIH campus and was working on uh, type 2 diabetes, got really uh, enthralled by the insulin receptor and how it worked. Uh, but at the time, this was in 1993, just a year before Mosaic was really taking off, and uh, which eventually became Netscape. Uh, I wrote some software to just look every day on the internet in the databases at the NIH what new papers were there in my field. Uh, I en ended up uh, writing a little scripting tool for AppleScript. Uh, some of the Mac aficionados will know what that is. And it lets you do anything on the internet uh, uh, in AppleScript. That won first prize in some competition, and people wanted to buy the software like crazy. So that was the first one I really incorporated into a C corporation. I became Mango Tree Software. And even during medical school and internship uh, residency, I was just selling software like crazy. Uh, you couldn't even sell software on the internet. So I knew all the FedEx Dropbox times. So I used to have to run to the Dropbox and literally FedEx out boxes of software. Did you ever think about leaving medicine and going into software? I mean, there was a point in my uh, undergrad, uh, you know, most of my friends were in computer science. They were getting jobs at these companies. You know, 80, you know, 91, 92, what an exciting time to work <laughs> in computers. So, but uh, I'm so glad I stuck with medicine. Right. How did you wind up connecting with Zach and wind up continuing your training in Boston? Yeah, so Zach happens to be a pediatric endocrinologist. A lot of people don't really know him for that. Our listeners do. Uh, of course they do. Uh, I went to, uh, I ended up uh, interviewing at Boston Children's for a pediatrics residency. And uh, uh, one of the interviewers was one of his first trainees, is one of his first PhD students, Yao Sun. I would just kept saying, you got to meet Zach, you got to meet Zach. And that's when I knew I had to go to Boston Children's and there was this pediatric endocrinologist who did computer science. Uh, day one of my uh, fellowship with Zach uh, changed my life. Wow. Uh, and, uh, you yeah, know, uh, really inspirational folks there, include, especially Zach. Yeah, we um, you sh we had him on the show recently. It was it was terrific. He's a, he's a really fun guy to, to talk to. Absolutely. Did you, then you ended up, Crossing the country, back to Apple country, you wound up at Stanford. So given your interest in entrepreneurship, you know, what, what differences did you experience between how, how that idea was viewed at Stanford uh, versus at Harvard, for instance? Because it seems to me like, you know, Harvard is not, at least historically, particularly at that time, very entrepreneurial oriented, whereas Stanford, you know, the... the it's uh, in the blood. Yeah, it's sort of in the DNA of everybody that goes there to, to start a company. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, look, I, I, these are the two great places to live in the United States, in my opinion, the Boston area, the Bay Area. Uh, and they do start many companies uh, in the Boston area. You have, uh, you know, heroes of mine like Bob Langer and others. Sure. But the big difference is, in general, they don't talk about it to each other, right? I mean, I'm generalizing a lot here uh, where, you know, your neighbor might have started a company, but they don't necessarily share with you why they're doing it. It's all kind of taboo. You don't really talk about it that kind of aspect. Oh my goodness, in the Bay Area, it's like you only have one company, you're a loser. I've got two, <laughs> kind of thing, right? And, and like you're, you're proud of this. You're not like ashamed of this, you're proud of it here. And you got heroes here, Ron Davis and Rick Myers and many others here uh, who really show how to do not just one, but many. Uh, but, and uh, they're here, but they're, they're more open, they're more, I, I just feel like more people talk about entrepreneurship in academia here than they do at Harvard. So how did you end up Staying in medicine and not running off to, uh, you know, some spin-out company. Oh, I mean, so... What's, what's kept you there? Uh, I think you asked Zach the same question on his interview. And I have to admit, I least started listening to all of your podcasts after I heard you wanted to interview me. Uh, but I, I think Zach uh, answered it in a nice way. And I have to really mimic what he says. 
those of us who stick around in academia tend to have academic kind of ADHD, right? We're always on different ideas. And I love starting these efforts. Uh, uh, I can tell you, my wife will also confirm, uh, I'm terrible at the follow-through on the company side, right? I like to be the strategic advisor and help out and the vision guy. Uh, but, but the day-to-day, uh, I'm probably not the best at that in the corporate environment. Uh, maybe someday, uh, you know, who can tell? It'll be a new challenge. I love having all these ideas and trying to pull the trigger on as many of those that are launchable as I can. So what's the mo- your most favorite one you've ever done in terms of being an advisor, or, you know, a, a helper too? What's the one that stands out in your mind as the most fun experience or the most formative? Oh, my goodness. You're asking a loaded question here. If I answer any other way, my wife will kick me out of the home. Oh, fair I enough. Mean, so obviously, we started Numedi together, uh, computational drug repositioning using AI and big data. Uh, to try to figure out new uses for drugs. Of course, uh, hers is the best company. Uh, I, you know, we talk about it constantly. It's our life here. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Good answer. <laughs> Savvy answer, anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, she's been. She. We're actually going to have her on on, on 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 one of the next uh, episodes of the show. And I know she's also uh, spoken at Lisa's course. Oh yeah, she has. I'm she super has proud of her. A very smart and interesting woman. Uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So is it hard to have a two, you know, brainiac household like that? I mean, you know, that's, do you have kids? Is that a lot of pressure on them to produce something incredible? You know, uh, we, have, uh, we have a 14 year old daughter, uh, David's met her. I think, uh, I would say it's a three brainiac household now. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> but you know, when she was younger, we used to Agree. watch Shark Tank. Do you knew what evaluation of a company meant? You know, cool things like that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so she's going to end up at math camp like David is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, and she's, she's going to be a scientist, I hope, I think, you know, looking at where things are going. So, uh, you know, it's a great household, obviously. <laughs> we're, we're having fun here. So what were you focusing on when you were at Stanford? What was your big ambition and your, your proudest achievement there? Yeah, so, you know, I showed up as assistant professor. I knew, you know, we were thinking about big data sets and public data, and it was really the open data revolution that made my career, that all these scientists have to share their raw data on the internet if they get NIH money, if they publish in a top tier journal. And boy, there were so few people out there. There still are so few people out there using any of that data. So, you know, I, I, love, trying, I love committees trying to get more people to share data and talk about the theory. I just wanted to put it into practice. If all this data is going to be out there, what exactly are we going to do with this? What can we show the world? And that's really how I launched my career. Uh, the data just keeps growing exponentially, so many databases. The other thing that really made my career was this fact that you could start to really hire contract research organizations to follow through on the kind of biological and biomedical validation, you know, uh, outsourcing the biology, if you will. And uh, the combination of having data that I didn't have to go collect, uh, I just had to curate, and then coming up with ideas and then testing drugs or diagnostics by hiring labs, uh, that just that just came to be my sweet spot, and uh, we just kept turning that crank like crazy at Stanford. And not just with the grad students, and uh, you know, we obviously also spoke to uh, Joel Dudley, and and appreciate the tremendous impact you had on his career. Um, but some of the most remarkable talks I remember you. I know I've listened to you give a tool were with like high school students, right? Who've come to your lab and have, and have just done all this. You've taught them how to, and in some cases they have really innate uh, knowledge of the internet and you've taught them how to leverage the existing resources in, in remarkable ways. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's kind of funny. I mean, uh, the high school kids are pretty pluripotent. You know that. They can take on anything. Uh, and then we're giving them like 20,000 cancer samples to work with. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, 
you know, when you look at that compared to someone, you know, growing beans, uh, you know, in a garden, you know, which of those are going to win the prizes here, right? So we end up having like a half a dozen or more of these kids winning the Intel or Westinghouse or Siemens. It keeps getting renamed now the Regeneron Prize. Right. Uh, at least getting to the semifinalists because uh, already at the start, this was going to be impactful. And they just came with a computational background, right? A lot of kids have a coding background. They just never realized it could be used for science. And you just, you just got to do everything you can as a researcher to just turn on that interest. And I'm particularly kind of picky about this because to a lot of kids, biology means dissection with formaldehyde, you know, that you have this kind of stink to it. And it can be so digital and clean and beautiful. That's the kind of biology you got to get in front of these kids, you know, so that they're not just writing another app to share photos with each other, you know? Do you ever think about, like, the whole maker movement? It seems to be a, a giant movement of people. Oh, he's tweeting about of... He tweets about it in Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, that's, you, <laughs> you know, know. Body hacking and building their own medical devices and all this stuff. What do you think about that? Oh, my God. So we love Maker Fair. We've been going as long as I can remember now. Uh, here in the Bay Area, we have a great Maker Fair uh, and a Maker movement. You know, and just a note to anyone listening, do not ever, ever even try to invite me to give an invited talk that weekend. It's an automatic no. Uh, <laughs> my, this is, that is my weekend with, the, with my daughter. Uh, you know, Jenny comes too, and we just go crazy. I'm a kid in a candy store maker fair. So what's the coolest thing you've seen there? What's the coolest thing you've seen at one of these things that's meaningful? Oh, my, I'm so... Uh, <laughs> the one we went to, I guess, seven years ago, let them having a two-color... 3D printer at home, right? I mean, so like I, I go crazy and go on shopping sprees from there. But we have a 3D printer at home, and we've had one for years. Uh, so I, the coolest thing I saw there probably uh, it was a two-story 3D printer. I mean, I couldn't wow. believe you could make them that big. Uh, this was maybe two years ago. I, I posted a video on my Twitter feed somewhere. Uh, that was impressive. And all of a sudden, everyone started talking about buildings on 3D printers. Yeah, they're building a huge bridge in, uh, I think, the Netherlands on a 3D printer right now. It's almost done. I've exactly. seen a video of that. So, so Atul, let me come back to the, what, one of the things that you were just talking about, you know, was all the existing data that's available. And this kind of brings up um, a, a almost like a higher-level point. I've always been struck by your emphasis on the volume of data, in a sense, rather than specifically on than, than getting caught up on the quality of the data. In contrast to the view of many clinical research experts like Bill Crowley of Mass General and other folks like Arizona State University's Anna Barker, who emphasize the importance of rigorous data collection and of and of meticulous attention to how the samples are collected. Can you help us understand where you're coming from here? Yeah. So usually, quality is really the first and most important thing people pick on in terms of like what I'm, uh, this way of doing science. And so I have a probably prepared answer for this one. Let me put it this way. I think there are very few evil people in science. Everyone tries their best when they make these measurements. And in fact, I think it's an advantage when you have 10 or 100 different ways to think about a condition. And so I've said this many times, I would rather take 10 or 100 mediocre, quote unquote, mediocre quality data sets than one data set from someone who thinks they're the best at this. Right? I want 10 or 100 different ways of looking at autism or type 2 diabetes or cancer. And then I'm going to try to figure out what's in common there, right? What are maybe half of them seeing? What are three quarters of them seeing? Because I, I believe we're going to get to more reproducible, more robust answers that way, right? I mean, quality, the other thing I'll say is I'm a big believer in Voltaire. Voltaire is the fam- has the famous quote, perfection is the enemy of the good enough or the good. Uh, and I'm a believer in that, right? And so what I usually con- tell people is, you know, think we're skeptics in science, right? We're trying to be skeptics, but I can easily bet you that we're such good skeptics that a hundred years from now, 
will still find some way to pick on data collected 99 years from now, right? Why would it be perfect in 100 years? We'll still find something wrong with the but data. But you know, the, alter, the other argument, though, a, the other argument a tool is, the, is, is not quite Voltaire, but is a comedian Dennis Miller who points out that two of crap is crap. So um, <laughs> yeah, garbage and that's, in, the, garbage that's, out, that's right. the edited version um, <laughs> for a family-friendly show. So it's unclear that if you have, it's sort of like, well, two of crap is crap, but suddenly if you get to 10,000 of crap, it sounds like you're saying, well, maybe there's actually some ro- robustness there. There's a pony in there. Nah, it's not crap. <laughs> it's not crap. It's I mean, Scottish. these are well-funded <laughs> researchers, right? You know, the University of Podunk doesn't get an NIH grant to go collect microarray samples, right? These are our peers that get these big grants to do this. Of course, at the scientific level, we're always going to pick on each other's science. But these are the best scientists making measurements. He wants to give him credit for intention. It's very for fanciness. I, you know, I uh, not for fanciness for intention. I think. I, I think you know, yeah, sort of true. But like, so many of these studies are flawed by their lack of diversity of the population that's included in them, and you know, that's going to drive the creation of algorithms that are going to be wrong for people of color, for women, for whatever. I don't know. I, I, I somewhere in the middle, I think is probably the right answer. I don't know. I don't know. I'm really worried about this garbage, yeah, so in, garbage I, out thing. I'd probably take 10, 10 data sets, 100 data sets might even get you more diversity, right? Especially if they're collected from around the world. Uh, you know, singular humans have flaws, right? You're always going to do something the wrong way. But collectively, I mean, again, it's a hypothesis that the group thing here in science tends to be much more accurate and more reproducible than just the one scientist who says they're the very best at doing something, right? That's yeah, the yeah, that's there. probably true, I suppose. I, um, although you have to worry about regression to the mean at a certain point. Um, so one of the, the issues and the challenges in what you're doing is the data integration aspect of it. And I know you're uh, trying to bring together the health data from across the UC system, which is um, going to be challenging in and of itself since the, the campuses can, can hardly deal with each other, it seems, sometimes. <laughs> um, and, and I think that is actually the crux of it. I mean, you know... The greatest challenge um, probably isn't tech, isn't technical. It's probably cultural as as much as anything else. I I think you actually agree with that. What's your view on that? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, there's this national narrative that harmonization is hard. So why can't people share data? And I think a lot of it has to do with the culture and more specifically the economics of the situation. Uh, if you have two health systems as neighbors that are competing with each other, there are significant financial <laughs> reasons. Well, I'm not going to name names. Uh, there are significant reasons to not want to share data with each other, right? Can you guarantee that one of the institutions won't find flaws in how care is being delivered at one of the hospital systems and, and put up ads saying we have better care here? Look, uh, our numbers are better. You can't guarantee that today. I think that that is a big reason why sharing does happen. Not because we don't have standards. We have enough standards. That's not rocket science to make new standards. It's not that hard. It's really because we have to create, we have to engineer new business reasons to share data. Because once you have a business reason to share data, boy, it's kind of magical how people share data. Uh, but you have to well, it's realize- It's funny because you know, there's that saying, data is the new oil, right? People are all running around saying, data is the new oil. And, of course. You know, but then, like oil companies would not share their oil wells. <laughs> that's right. I mean, but the, the PC answer to that is data is the new soil, right? So you gotta, it's, it's where you plant the seeds and watch them grow, right? So it's not- evil oil here either, right? So you're absolutely right. I, I'll, I will say this, right? So uh, it is funny how uh, the tech companies in particular, okay, you can name them, whatever, let's say Google or Microsoft, or, uh, they're kind of laughing at us like, oh, hospital systems, why don't you share your data? Uh, even if you de-identified it, why aren't you sharing your data? 
I don't see them in line sharing their customer data with the rest of the world, even if it's de-identified. I can't get a list of everyone that's bought Microsoft Office or Google's customers. Oh, maybe you can de-identify it. That'll make it safe. They're still not going to share their customer list. Right? I mean, so just think about us. We are still an industry here, right? We are a business. Uh, to just have, just assume everyone shares their customer data, well, why, why nobody else does either, right? Uh, so I mean, that's really the challenge. I mean, and so I think really what you point out, one of the challenges for health systems is on the one hand, the data is, quote, the, the people are their customers. On the other hand, there's federal funds. There's the imperative. To, there's the obvious benefits, which you champion more eloquently than anyone on the planet, of the, the, the insight that you get from rich data sharing. How are there specific approaches that can overcome the inherent and not irrational from what you're saying, reluctance to uh, share data? Absolutely, or I wouldn't be in this field, What's right? The trick? What's I mean, the, the strategy I think I've been trying to take for my entire career is to come up with true positive use cases. If Just assume for a second the data is there. What exactly are you going to do with this, right? Kill, create the killer apps. There's enough data out there for people, for innovators to do this. Show the world what you want to do with this data. And if it's compelling enough, and by the way, if there's enough of a business reason for it to go forward, it will go forward, and the sharing will happen. That's the belief I have for my career. So, you know, that I always find the use of the word killer app kind of amusing in healthcare since we're supposed <laughs> to be working on the opposite. But nevertheless, what is, what is the killer app? What is the thing that you think will, you know, suddenly make the, you know, gates of heaven open and the angels sing and everybody want to share the data? What's the one? Yeah, so, the you know, one? I can't give away all my secrets here, but these are the kind of thinking, the current thinking I have. I mean, it depends on the, the level of measurements, right? scientists sharing molecular data, right, all these measurements and RNA and DNA. Uh, I think coming up with diagnostics and therapeutics, or at least targets for therapies, are the killer app there. We've shown this many times, uh, as have others that have been on your uh, podcast. I think um, coming up with actual drugs and diagnostics, you can start companies, you can get to get pretty far. On the electronic health record side, I think it's going to be better organization of accountable care organizations. I don't think they're all going to be called ACOs, right? We might be calling them something else someday. But I think as there are more and more mergers and virtual kinds of mergers in the healthcare space, I think we are all going to want to understand variation in practice, variation in the care we deliver, and we're going to want to control that and minimize that. And I think the only way to get there is to start to actually look at one's entire system of healthcare data. Um, so I think there are going to be killer apps like that. Well, it's funny. I saw yes, something yesterday came out of one of the physicians we know at, at Cedars who said, you know, it was a big study done uh, that, you know, Yelp reviews are, are wrong and terrible because they were compared to the data that Cedars has about its providers. And the ones that were reviewed and considered good by Yelp were not the ones that were, you know, considered good by Cedars so much who had, you know, quote unquote, better information about their own doctors. But yet Cedars, of course, will not share that detailed information about which doctors are good. So, you know, at least you got Yelp, you got something. I mean, I think that that challenge right there of the the lack of transparency 
you know, inherent in the business model of health systems is really interesting. That's really interesting, Lisa, because I've heard so much critique from practicing doctors of the problem with sort of, you know, consumer reviews is you try to do the right thing as a doctor. You don't give someone antibiotics who doesn't need them. Right. You don't give someone opioids who don't need them. You know, you, you, you try to practice good medicine, and then you could wind up being penalized on Yelp for it. And it sounds like what you're saying, and I'd really welcome a tool's view on this, is, you know, that's great, but what's the alternative? It's not like this is the best approach, but until internal quality scores or some other measurement is shared, people prefer something over nothing. I have a very different uh, line of thinking, I think, for a healthcare quality like this. And I think even, even when those scores are transparent, and you have groups making a lot of this transparent, like LeapFrog and many others, uh, you know, five-star ratings and stuff like that, I don't think that's enough, actually, anymore, uh, any more than it is for consumer reports, right? So consumer reports puts all their dots and stars for cars and car manufacturers. Yet, you don't see everyone just buying a five-star car, right? Uh, I see other cars besides Toyotas out on the road, right, for example, right? So The Tesla did get a perfect score, but we, we digress. <laughs> well, I think they lost a little bit in the last round or something with Tesla. I hear you. But think about Tesla for a second, though, right? Okay, how many people are in line to buy their, their car? They haven't even seen the car. They already put down money, right? So they're not looking at the scores either, right? What are they looking at? They're looking at branding. And I think branding is going to make a world of a difference in healthcare. Mark my words, it's a prediction that I think consumers are going to be numbered out. They're not going to think about all these scores. And I think branding is going to have more and more importance in how consumers choose their positions and health systems. Like it or not, I'm not saying it's a good thing. I see it coming. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, we both agree with you. Yeah, I think we're already there. I mean, I think we're already there. I think but it's unfortunate because even within, you know, a great university, uh, you know, academic medical center like UCSF, there's doctors that are good and there's yeah. doctors that are not as good, right? I mean, by definition, 50% of everything is worse than average. So it's an interesting problem. Yeah, but at the same time, we have to be more careful with our brand, right? So uh, instead of thinking about this as a three-star, five-star doctor, I think the future internal discussions will be, uh, will this pollute our brand, right? Will this practice, this malpractice, hurt our brand? It's going to be a different line of thinking someday in health systems. Wow. So a tool of two things. First of all, I really resonated with your earlier, I mean, I, I feel like, I think I've even written about this, the idea of how, of a way to break through some of the challenge of how to share data is, is essentially to overwhelmingly demonstrate the utility to where it becomes unconscionable not to do it through a amazingly visceral app. I mean, I have a slide where I talk about, you know, at least I mean, Uber, maybe Lyft, an example where you don't have to rationalize why someone should use Uber or explain or persuade them or bribe them to use Uber. It's sort of like you'll use it because you want to get from place A to place B, and it's just such an obviously good way of doing it. Um, and then if there was something like an, an application like that that utilized health data and got you to that end, I think once people started to see that, then you'd be like, well, how could you, how could you not offer that? Um, so I, I, I want to emphasize that. The second thing is um, the – I'm really always – I think – I mean, there's so many things that you do that I've, I've always so admired. And I think perhaps almost none more than the way that you see you've always championed entrepreneurship as – is a key part of both the translational mission and the academic mission of it's something that not like oh what academic sellouts do but how it's an expression of the of the translational impulse and I was wondering it, you must have gotten some pushback from academics for that uh, what has been your experience there yeah so it's a lot easier to start companies when the rest of your day job is comfortable right so of course I write papers I get grants a bunch of my grants get funded 
you know, I can't, you can't really say that entrepreneurship will, will save you in an academic job if you can't do the other two, right? So it's really, uh, uh, it's necessary, uh, but in some ways it's not sufficient for me, right? I think, you know, what I preach is that you can't change the world just by writing papers about it, right? At some point, and, and especially us in the medical world in academia where we're allowed to be applied, right? We can't be ashamed. We're not ashamed to be very translational, very applied. In our world, it's, it's amazing if we can come up with drugs and uh, diagnostics, uh, insights into disease that uh, lead to products and services. Uh, I think it's been our duty to come up with those. But you, uh, and uh, that's what I try to foster through my training. But do you face any, I mean, and again, as you know, I've, I'm, you know, been deeply, deeply involved in this on both coasts for many years. So I'm just so familiar with this debate and having waged it. You know, there is definitely pushback from people who are concerned that, oh, that focusing on entrepreneurial uh, uh, efforts or, or having such an awareness of it pushes your research and what you care about in a way other than the sort of pure advancement of science that um, ideally sh- is what academicians should focus on and that you're, you're, you're sort of corrupting the mission of the university. I obviously don't believe that, but I've certainly heard that. What, what do you say to that? Yeah, so yeah, that's a great point. I think if I were in a department of history, like in a school of arts and sciences, uh, I think what you're saying would absolutely be the culture against entrepreneurship. But in a medical school, I think we're allowed to do this and we're encouraged to do this. And I'm going to argue it's our responsibility to do this because we have patients coming to medical centers every day that have no solutions today. And we have to do something about it, right? So I think it's a different in a medical school, right? (laughs) I think it's doable in medical schools. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, this has been a terrific conversation. It's really been uh, nice to have you on the show, Atul. No, it's been absolutely my pleasure. My pleasure. You know, it's funny. You've uh, oh, you've uh, interviewed my mentor. You've interviewed one of my students. So it's great to finally be on board here. We're looking forward to interviewing <laughs> your wife as well. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're building up to that. We're building up to that. Saving the best for last. <laughs> That's great. I'll tell her. Absolutely. Uh, she's just downstairs here. <laughs> she knows it. All right, Atul. Thanks so much. We'll catch up soon. Take care, guys. All right. So Atul totally rocks, doesn't he? He's a riot. Uh, you know what? I. I I like his pragmatic view of the world, you know, as a as an academic medical center guy, right? Right. Uh, for a lifelong academic medical center guy, I like the, I like the the practical approach he has, and particularly the 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 concept that you know it's a responsibility to be thinking about how you take science and make it useful for patients. Absolutely, and you know, in in California and Stanford in particular, it seems much more part of the firmament. Yeah. For a while, in particular, in Boston, it re- really wasn't, and you know, although there were some some people who were really pushing it. It, it was just like he described, where basically people were kind of in the closet about their sort of entrepreneurial interest, and you know, sort of, well, you, of course you'll have the good grade, you know, you know, the decency not to discuss that publicly. Um, so it's uh, like from Blazing Saddles. So it was, uh, <laughs> so, so it was, uh, yeah. So I, th- I thought that it was just it's, he's inspirational in, in so many ways, and we're so lucky to have him out here. Absolutely. Well, please remember to rate us on iTunes and leave a comment. Help others discover the show. And join us next time when our guest will be Ken Tarkoff, the CEO. You have PSYOPs. I am a longtime fan of PSYOPs founder, Jonathan Hirsch. I actually think I owe him a coffee at Phil's. How very Silicon Valley of you. Yeah. You can follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow Lisa soon at AdventureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded not in New Jersey, but in Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Bada-bing. Bada-boom. 
even a broken clock is right twice a day. 